The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're discussing math and things made from yarn. First up, Dr. Dinah Taimunya discusses her book about crochet and hyperbolic geometry, and how making geometric models that people can play with helps teach math. After that, Janelle Shane discusses her hobby of training neural networks to do things like name colors, come up with Halloween costume ideas, and generate knitting patterns. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marian Kilgore. Joining me is Dr. Dinah Taiminya, who studied mathematics at the University of Latvia. Later, teaching at Cornell University, she came up with an idea for tactile exploration in non-Euclidean geometry using crocheted hyperbolic planes. She's authored two books involving crocheted mathematical objects, Experiencing Geometry, Euclidean and Non-Euclidean with History, and the one that we're here to discuss, Crocheting Adventures with Hyperbolic Planes, which is just released as a second edition. So thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> so one of the things that's almost always a challenge to do with, with an audio-only uh, sort of show is... Discussing mathematics, because a lot of the time when we're teaching math or learning math, it's printed materials in a book, or you're writing formulas, which are always sort of challenging to describe out loud. Uh, so why have you spent so much time over the years popularizing ways of building physical models of mathematical objects? I think that one of the things is to get a tactile approach to the mathematics. And if there is a something, some real thing you can touch... So it's easier to understand um, like these formal concepts. And also it takes away a lot of mass and anxiety. Because if it's something you can make by your own hands, well, then it means it's something real. So you can explore it and you can hold it in your in your hands and just see what are the properties. Why? And that might raise you some, you know, some further questions. Why? And then that's that's the theory which answers why. Yeah, when I was when I was looking up some of uh, the videos of talks that you've done that are online, one of them you started off with holding up this crocheted model of yours and asking who in the audience would be interested in playing with it, and people seemed kind of intrigued by it. And then you asked who would be interested in doing some hyperbolic geometry, and like the everybody's face sort of went, uh. <laughs> so is that the, a sort of response that you get often? Uh, yes, yes. Well, it, of course, it depends from the audience. If that is uh, like a scientific audience, uh, like I was just like recently this May, I was invited to Natal to the International Institute for Physics, where there was a conference in geometry of soft matter. And it was like really highly creative people who are working, creating new materials and exploring this kind of geometry. And they were interested. They knew that I will be talking about hyperbolic geometry, and they exactly wanted to do it in a tactile way, giving a new perspective, just a different way of looking at familiar things. And, of course, when I'm talking to crocheters, then crocheters say, oh, yeah, well, we have done this thing, because some of these uh, some of these uh, uh, negative curve, uh, negatively curved crocheted pieces come out when you do mistakes trying to crochet something flat, some some doily or something like some hat and get ruffles. So what came first for you, your understanding of the math or 
uh, or, or creating a model of it that then led you to understanding the math? Oh, no, those were, those were two separate things because I was crocheting as a hobby and I self-taught myself crochet to finish my knitting pieces because I was considering myself a knitter. And then when I had to teach hyperbolic geometry and I saw the paper model and I wanted my students to explore these paper models and as the woman being very careful with how I spend time, I realized for each class I would have to make a paper model, which would take me about hour an hour and a half, more than an hour for sure. And that seemed to me like a waste of time. So I said, well, maybe I can make it some different way. And and that's when I suddenly saw like, oh, I can crochet it. So why are physical models in general of mathematical concepts important? You know, people are thinking differently. There are people who can do totally theoretically. In the same class, I had a, I had a guy who said, I can't imagine if I can have a formula which stunned me because I, 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 I see, but, but that's a way how he was a computer science major and he needed, you know, he was so much was connected with, uh, with computers that he couldn't do it without it. Well, eventually he learned and he was very, he was a very um, good student at the end. But for me, like, I do need to see it at least, you know, something kind of like a feeling through my fingers, I would say. Yeah. And there are, I know the mathematicians, like um, my late colleague, uh, Bill Thurston, so he had full, full his office with various models, and he would definitely fidget and make it from the papers and, and sewing and then plastics and everything. And then there are many mathematicians. You actually see their offices are full with physical toys in order to do mathematics and then there are people who can do it totally in their minds it's a it's just a different way of thinking so the 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 book that just came out or came out in its second edition um is about crochet well about hyperbolic geometry and includes instructions on how to crochet hyperbolic planes so maybe just going back to some of the basics uh, when we're talking about a plane in mathematics, uh, what is it, and why are there different kinds? Well, there are in two dimensions. In two dimensions, there are three possible geometries, and they depend on the curvature of the surface. Uh, simply talking is that if you are standing on a floor, it's plane. It's a plane. It's a Euclidean plane. It has zero curvature. It's not curved. Uh, the other possibility, and very familiar, which we are all familiar, is that we are having something round and we are having a sphere, and that's a different one, that's a spherical geometry. So, therefore, if we say that there is a positive and there is a zero curvature, just from the plain logic exists that there should be some surface with a negative curvature. And that was found already in 19th century that such a surface exists and that's that a hyperbolic geometry is defined on this. It's just a third type of a geometry. So when you speak about a, a negative curvature, uh, do you have some examples of that that people might be familiar with? Oh, yeah. Well, it's very classic example is a potato chip. But also you can see like a um, banana in the middle of the banana. Imagine that you have a middle of the banana and then if you are taking your fingers around, then the one you, you will have a different directions. Uh, if you take your 
thumb and index finger and try to put it on the surface of the bananas. They will be going opposite directions. Mm. So, so it's sometimes as such saying a saddle point, right. you know, like on a saddle. Yes, but it's uh, the thing is when we talk about like a geometries and every point is the same yeah so you know like it just can, keeps going also you can see the negative curvature on all the flowers which have ruffles okay so so ruffled objects in general yes. are a, are a yeah. negative yes. curve yeah it's it's when there is a surface there is a surface area is too too much it's like excess of surface area it's actually one of the reasons why it's called hyperbolic something too much okay. in this case surface area i didn't put two and two together there <laughs> Why do mathematicians care um, if something, if the geometry they're working with is on a flat surface or a spherical surface or a hyperbolic surface? Okay, when you are looking on a very, when you are looking closely, like on a very small areas, you might want to say that they are all the same. They can, you can use like a classical Euclidean geometry. When these areas are getting larger, like let's say, when you are talking about the Earth as, as per se. So then do have to, you know, like if you are in your town, which is not Ithaca, which is very hilly, but in some some plain, plain places, you know, like like uh, level places, and just the usual geometry will work. But if you are going where there are hills and valleys, so you should have a different geometry. And one of the things is if you are looking on a map of United States and... Uh, looking on the borders, which were supposed to be straight and continuous, and then you see there are like these uh, kind of like a corners out. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly when the lines were drawn, thinking that the geometry is plain, but essentially in the nature, those roads and or those borders, they are on a surface of the earth, which is curved. So there should have been taken in account uh, spherical geometry. <laughs> okay. Um and then when we get into talking about how a surface curves, what what are the differences between a constant curvature and a and a varying curvature? So if the if the curvature is constant, then you can define then you can use the geometry. When this when the curvature varies, then you can't use the same geometry everywhere on a surface. So that's the reason. Okay. So something like a potato chip is a negatively curved surface, but it's not curved the same amount everywhere. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, or you can like uh, take some lettuce leaf, and you can see that it's like closer to the stem. It will be more flat, and and to the to the very edges, it can be very curly. Right. Yeah. So that would be like a difference in geometry. You know, you can't do it. You can you can do some approximation in these areas, but you can't use the same geometry in the whole surface. So, uh, so you mentioned that hyperbolic geometry has been around since the 19th century. Um, but my understanding is that some mathematicians didn't really think that hyperbolic planes could exist in like regular 3D space. Why? Oh, Why would they think that? Well, that is based on 1901. David Hilbert showed that you can't embed hyperbolic plane fully into the three space. There are reasons that that means like that there are points which will not be very perfectly involved. So um, it's kind of like there are C2 bedding, embeddings and, and uh, there is a CRM by John Nash and then there is like a Milner CRM and then there is uh, 
some other mathematical results, but for uh, all practical purposes to understand hyperbolic planes, and you can use approximations. And the very first approximation in the real physical model, that was created in 1868 by Eugenio Beltrami. Okay. Yeah, who showed like, well, here is a surface and here's a hyperbolic geometry work on this surface was that one made out of paper uh, yes he he made he made it out of a paper and then he rolled and then he called it pseudosphere okay so we've had paper models of hyperbolic planes around for a while um were the, was that sort of the the main way of of demonstrating or was that well, sort of the main way of showing the geometry um, uh, not necessarily I think the more popular was after uh, Beltrami made his paper models, then there were plastered models, some with the surfaces, because there are some other surfaces with a negative curvature. But then it will, became very popular and actually very well applicable in various uh, mathematical uh, theories to use like Poincaré or Klein models, which are, we call them models, but they are not the physical models. They are kind of like a maps. And I think the Poincaré model, like a Poincaré hyperbolic plane model, is the most popular and, and very much thanks to the Escher lithograph. So maybe actually let's get into a bit more about the crochet side of this, because uh, not all of our listeners are going to be particularly familiar with crochet, and I will admit uh, my my knitting skills are a bit better than my crochet skills. So I, I attempted one of the physical models in the book, but it didn't come out very well. So I'm going to have to try again. Um, but yeah, well, do you- but just to bring you- everybody sort of up to speed, could you just give a basic description of what crochet is? Well, I would rather say, okay, put the crochet and go on YouTube and you will get uh, at least... <laughs> So, well, but we are what we are doing, like we're just like doing a continuous, continuous loops in some way and following it, following some pattern. But so, yeah, so if somebody is used, used to watching a knitter, they'll have two long straight needles. Oh, okay, so the crochet is one hook. Right. And so yeah, you, just... you just do it with one, with one hook. Yes. And I started to prefer crocheting after after I had two little children. So because if you are doing some beautiful lace pattern and some very sweet little hands pull out your needles and your lace is gone. While when if they do that with crochet hook, you just lose a little bit. Right. Because you don't have you only have one stitch at a time on the hook. You have one stitch. Yeah, you have one stitch at the time. And there is a easier way with crochet hook is to move in space. Right. So when you're making these models of the hyperbolic planes, um, the, the crochet hook can move around the surface rather than with the knitting needles, with the knitting needles trying to keep it all in one place. Right. Well, yeah, and knitting needles, will, it's easy to make like a plane and you can make a cylinder and you can make like a cone or sphere and you can make a hyperbolic plane too. But with hyperbolic plane, the problem is that um, the amount of stitches grows exponentially. And if it grows exponentially on your knitting needles, then you have too many stitches and then it just gets hard. Well, Crochet adva- advantage of the crochet is that you deal with one stitch at a time. And then at the end of it, 
would you mind just describing for people what what some of these crochet models of hyperbolic planes look like? Well, so I remind some of them remind the flowers. Yeah, you you might you might think that they, they look like a flowers. Uh, if they are crocheted far enough, meaning that there is an edge gets kind of like a space filling curve, so then it's it's getting more spherical. Yes, but you can just go in various various ways and various colors and just really be creative if you wish so. <laughs> but they get quite roughly. Uh, yes, they do. That's the, that depends from the radius. And we have to think about that it's hard to imagine the plane is having a radius. But that's what it is. Because when we talk about the spheres, we are not necessarily always talk about a unit sphere, which means with radius one. Uh, just comparing, like, uh, think about like a pea and the watermelon. Yeah, so approximately both are spherical, but they are having quite different radii. And what you can think about, like, do on a pea, you can't, you know, like, is much less, maybe on a watermelon, you can draw something. It would be extremely hard to draw on a pea. Mm-hmm. And so do for hyperbolic planes, too. Some of them are very ruffled. So then we are saying they are having a small radius, and some of them are not as ruffled. They are just, like, slightly wavy. And so that is, the radius is from some so-called um, horocycle, and which is a uh, which is a circle with infinite circumference, but it does has a radius, and so that is a radius on that arch, uh, which you can get on a hyperbolic plane. So it's when you're making a hyperbolic plane, um, it's not the same pattern as like a ruffled doily or something like that. It's not a typical ruffle. If I'm uh, if you are doing a doily, and a doily you are trying to keep it flat if you want to be it on a on a table, or and then you can add just some ruffles. If you um, for a hyperbolic plane, if you want to see all the properties of hyperbolic geometry. So if you want to crochet hyperbolic planes, then it is important to increase stitches into the constant ratio. Let's say you crochet for an increase in fifth stitch and then keep this ratio through all the work. So every time you crochet a row, you would do... Crochet four and a fifth. Yeah, so if, if, if the row before had four stitches, that same section will have five in the next row or something, uh, some sort of ratio like that. Yes, yes, something like that, yes. And that will give you pretty quickly curvy. And if you don't want as curly, so then you would crochet, let's say, 19 and increase in 20th. That would be like a thing I would suggest if you want to crochet hyperbolic skirt, which actually is very flattering to every figure. (laughs) If you notice, there is a picture of me wearing that skirt in a book. Yeah, I saw it in the book. It looked interesting because I you normally with a skirt uh, with with sort of ruffles, um, you you sort of there's like a, a straight ruffle it looks like, but it, on that skirt it looks like towards the bottom the ruffles sort of get their own ruffles. There's there's extra. yeah no it's 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 actually it's very it's very very flowing it, it's uh, very nice. Uh, there is a in, if you know if you are familiar with sewing then there is a model which is called like. Godet skirt, or it's eight piece, and then they are sort of like uh, enlarged. They are getting wider on the bottom. Mm-hmm. So that's so that's about the same principle. 
except in, in crocheting them according to hyperbolic pattern gives much more fluid and really beautiful flow for a skirt. So what was your first reaction when you were invited to start bringing your mathematical models uh, to fiber craft exhibits? Mm. First of all, craft craft exhibits have never known those are art. Those are actually art exhibits. Oh, sorry I haven't been that. I haven't I have never been in a craft exhibit. I once applied and they said that my work is not original and I thought, well I don't know what they want. <laughs> never applied again. No, those are those are fiber art shows. Oh, sorry. So, so what was your first reaction when you were invited to bring your mathematical models to to art exhibits? Well, at first I agreed, and then I thought, like, what have I done? <laughs> because as as a as a school in school in a middle school, I only had art classes in the seventh grade, and not very good ones. All I learned in my art classes is how to shade a white egg on a white paper. <laughs> that was my but. Uh, and I was told that I can be anything but artist. And <laughs> and then I said, what am I going to do with this art exhibit? And like I went to the local yarn store and picked very nice yarns and started to make these models. And uh, people liked them. And so I did some more experimenting and, uh, and it just kept going. <laughs> you have... Uh, a couple of papers in math journals that, that involve crocheted models. What were the first sort of reactions from the math community when you started publishing these patterns as math, like scholarly papers? So the very first one was in 2001. We decided to publish it and thought which would be more most appropriate place to publish it. Then we approached mathematical intelligence and so then the editor at that time said, like, oh, no, crochet in mass journal. But since we have found some property and showed these models very useful for teaching, um, so, well, he he published it, and um, and that became, <laughs> that became very popular. Uh, well, and um, the next publication actually was funny. My after that publication in mathematical in, intelligence, my husband, because it was like joint paper with my mm -hmm. husband. Uh, so my husband started to receive emails asking how did he crocheted hyperbolic plane, <laughs> which he was taking it as as a laughing matter, and I was thinking that. Oh, wait a minute. I know this attitude in the United States that the women are not good in mass. Okay. So I can understand that you took away that I am able to do mathematics. But when I am taking uh, away my crochet skills, that's way too much. <laughs> so while well, I was uh, asking, there was a, one of the journalists, he wanted to write this article, and then my husband suggested him to read more properly who has crocheted these hyperbolic planes. And then he approached a couple months later, oh, yes, I read it. Now I understand. <laughs> well, it was my <laughs> my feminist <laughs> moment. Right, because you were you're both mathematicians. Uh, so people were making the assumption that you were just there. Or oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's up to this day when we are both. Um, so, you know, like I'm going like a math professors and everybody thinks it's my husband. And then he always says, no, she too. Yeah. Um, do you find that when you're talking to crocheters, which I imagine is a very predominantly female audience, 
Um, do you get much response where people are going, oh, well, but I was, I'm not good at math and, and that's fine. I'll stick to their crochet. Uh, I get mixed reactions. Yes, I have got these reactions that, you know, like the people are saying I'm not good at math. And then I always interrupt them saying that, well, wait a minute, nobody will publicly say I'm bad of writing or reading, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and that's sort of like a basic skill. And it's like, don't, don't do that it's it's acquirable but there are people no i have got more actually attitude from people saying well i wish i would have a math teacher like you in school i was always interested in math but my math teacher discouraged me of teaching of learning math and which is which is true that happened to one of my daughters too well that teachers calls calls me and says yeah well your daughter is not doing well in math and yes i know that women are not in good in math until i interrupted him and asked do you know to whom you are talking to mm-hmm. so but so yeah no it's it's people wanted to learn more about mathematics and they were just later in their life they would be happy to learn about all the math they, well all the math they missed when they were in school and that was a reason why i wrote a book because those that book actually the first edition really came out from the questions i was getting after my talks and people were writing me emails and asking questions and i said like okay then i guess i should just put it in a book yeah and it's a it's a very approachable book like it's it's got lots of pictures it it uses plenty of like you know physical examples which is one of the things i i quite liked cuz i liked personally i like to play with objects and and play play with things um and so the whole idea that you you could teach geometry and learn geometry with by by playing around with objects is very appealing to me <laughs> Well, I was trying to write a book in a way that you can go through the book just going through the pictures. If you notice that there are pictures, they are not by numbered, but they are having extensive footnotes, mm-hmm. like the captions. And you can go through the book just looking at the pictures and reading captions. And then if something really interests you, you don't have to read the book from, you know, like in some particular order. But if something catches your interests, then you can go more and read the text, what it is about. And then if you are really interested and want to get some references, so that's what the, all the end notes at the end of the book is. I, I was just going to say, so your book has has many pictures in it, and it's got many examples of artwork that intentionally or not represent these geometric principles that the book is discussing. So how much crossover do you think there is between math and art? Oh, that is a, that is a lot of crossover because it's those are both creative creative endeavors which humans involve. And uh, from the very from the very beginning, actually, the oldest artifacts, they are geometrical. So, so they go, go together because like mass and art deals with symbols, mm-hmm. whether they are pictorial or, you know, in different, different, different ways represented. I- and then trying to find the various meanings, what these symbols mean, you know, like just connecting them and, and conveying meaning in mathematics and in art. I think the most important is meaning. Yeah, and math and art are both trying to get at that, uh, sometimes from different directions, and sometimes it looks like from the same direction. Yes, and that is a that is an art which has inspired math, and math which has inspired art. Yeah, well, 
just trying to understand. And if you don't understand everything, it's just trying to understand mathematics. And it's just, um, and if you don't understand in all the details, that's okay. Because there are many things we don't really understand and we are trying to get the meaning. Uh, imagine like if you are trying to understand somebody talking in a different language mm-hmm. and there are things even without knowing words, you can get some meaning what these people mean. Mm-hmm. Definitely you, you know where, where they are happy, angry, satisfied, not satisfied. You don't need to know much words. Yeah, so well, and if you get the meaning. So that's that would be it. So yeah, so if people understand sort of just the very, even just some of the very basic stuff about math, they can start to see where it comes in in life. Yeah, and I can invite people to look at my, you know, going on my webpage and just search for hyperbolic crochet and you will get a lot of examples and getting and just getting creative and going off. That would be that would be nice. Yeah. Uh, thanks for joining me. We will definitely have links up to your website and some of the some of the videos, and and so people can go and see these actual physical models, which I really want to build now because they look fun to play with. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can. I can. I can reveal you. Yes, I can reveal you a secret. So that uh, there is. A, it's a very, a very, very simple algorithm. But if you want to look your model to look like mine, so the thing is, uh, take a crochet hook. Uh, less numberless and uh, smaller than it is for for your yarn suggested on your yarn package mm-hmm. and also do it as much as tight as possible because you need to do it tight so that it would keep a form if you are doing it very loosely then it will just get too heavy and it will fall on itself it will just be very floppy good luck <laughs> thank you thank you <laughs> yeah so and thank you um you can learn more about Dr. Taiminia and find links to information about her books and models at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. There you can also find past episodes or social media links and learn how to support the show. And we'll be right back after this with more Science for the People. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Marianne Kilgore. Janelle Shane's neural network blog AIWeirdness.com features algorithms that try to invent human things like recipes, paint colors, and Halloween costumes. Their struggles illustrate what artificial intelligence is good at and where it has a lot to learn. She also trained a neural network to generate knitting patterns, which some good-natured volunteer knitters tried to debug and follow. Thanks for speaking to me today. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. (laughs) So how did you get into training neural networks for fun? Well, I saw somebody else had trained a neural network to generate cookbook recipes. And this was one of these things where, 
I encountered the recipe first, and it was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. Like, it was made by something that had no idea what the ingredients were or even how to spell half of them. It was asking for things like shredded bourbon, and then it would ask you to add ingredients that it hadn't asked for in the list, and then you would, you know, for completely forget about the title by the time you got to the end of the recipe. And I thought these were just hilarious. It was about the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And so then it was, okay, what made this? How did it do that? Why did it make these mistakes? And so that was the first step toward me saying, okay, maybe can I train something to generate more recipes like this? And what else can I generate, train it to do? So when we talk about a neural network, uh, you know, I've, I hear the words get it, getting thrown around in media a lot, like along with AI and machine learning. Mm-hmm. What exactly are we talking about when we're talking about a neural network? Well, a neural network is a type of machine learning, and you can also consider it a type of artificial intelligence, although that term artificial intelligence is very loosely defined. So it could mean anything from maybe, you know, your calculator all the way up to these kind of sci-fi artificial intelligence like R2-D2, C-3PO, these sort of things that can navigate around like a human being can. So kind of in between those two levels is the algorithms that we are using for a bunch of stuff behind the scenes. And these are mostly machine learning algorithms now, and they are mostly neural networks now. It's just turned out to be a really successful kind of machine learning algorithm. And these are algorithms that do everything from you know, label pictures to deliver ads to uh, handle some customer service interactions or try and sort out uh, spam email. Basically, if you've been online at all today or used your phone at all today, you've probably interacted with a neural network. You know, these kind of algorithms, these machine learning algorithms, these neural networks, they're kind of weird compared to other programs too. So, in the usual sort of programs, you could call them rules-based programs, you have a programmer, computer programmer, who sits down in front of the computer and figures out all the rules that the, uh, that the computer is going to follow. So the programmer has to understand the problem really well and has to know exactly the steps to solve it. But with machine learning algorithms, it's a lot different. You sort of give them the goal and say, you figure it out. You know, algorithm, you figure out what the rules are, what the, tre- what the trends are, and how to actually solve this problem. So with a lot of neural network problems, for example, like when I'm tra- asking it to generate cookbook recipes or when I'm trying to ask it to generate knitting patterns, I'm giving it examples of existing recipes or examples of existing knitting patterns and say, okay, try and figure out how to put letters and numbers and spaces in the right order so that it actually resembles a knitting pattern and it has to figure it out completely from scratch. So when you're providing the program with these examples of knitting patterns or recipes or Halloween costumes, um, <laughs> what does it, what does the process of training the network actually look like? Do you basically just have a file folder on your computer of examples and you tell the program this is where knitting patterns are? Go learn. That is pretty much how it goes down. I say, here is a file that contains 
as many knitting patterns as I could get. So in this case, it was a few thousand. And I say, you know, you computer know absolutely nothing about this. Like for all you know, I could be asking you to, to compose music or, you know, it, this could be in a different language or this could be math or this could be code. Like you have no idea what's in this text file or what any of it means. Don't speak English. Don't know what knitting is. Don't know what thread is. Have no idea that this is going to result in some real world artifacts being generated by hapless volunteers. Like all it sees is a sequence of letters and numbers and spaces. And it has to figure out how to predict what letters, numbers, and spaces come next. So when you train a neural network, some of the examples on your blog show the early results and then Mm -hmm. later on um, how do you, how do you, how do you go from sort of really early, really clunky and ridiculous, uh, output from a neural network to something that's a bit more refined and, and seems somewhat sensible? So the difference between the early ridiculous output and the later refined stuff is just time. I, I myself could be out, you know, have making dinner or, you know, out uh, hiking or something while it's doing all this. And I just have to come back later when it's had enough time to figure all this out for itself. Like I could sit there and watch it uh, make mistakes and tell, oh, no, you've got that wrong. You know, don't don't keep doing this or you're and I but I have no really real way built in with these programs I'm using. I have no way built in for me to really tell it that. It has to figure all that out for itself with trial and error. So does it produce results and then compare compare them back to the training set and go, oh, this doesn't look right and then try again? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It's testing its it's testing its own predictions against what actually came next. So what happens if you take one of these programs that's been trained to do something like Halloween costumes and you try to train it to do something different, like a knitting pattern or a recipe? Um, <laughs> yeah, if is, you don't is, start does from that scratch. <laughs> or do you... uh, it can be helpful. Uh, so it helps if you start with something that's a little similar to what you want to end up with. So if I were to... Uh, start with Halloween costumes, it would be easier to go from there to the names of bands, for example, uh, than it would be to go to something that's really long sentences or this whole recipe. So starting with bands, it might help a little bit because it's already got some information about uh, what kinds of letters and numbers are, well, not even numbers, Gosh, yeah, it you, it would have to do a lot of undoing of things that it had learned to go from Halloween costumes straight to knitting patterns. And so it would be a little bit of an advantage, but there would definitely be an awkward point in between when it's saying something like, you know, knit two scarecrows and, you know, you know add a Batman or something, you know, there's... There's definitely a phase in between when it's doing neither of them very right, very well. And then by the time it's done training on, you know, the new task, it's forgotten completely about the original task. It can't do Halloween costumes anymore once you've trained it to do knitting patterns. So you don't just end up with a neural network that's now good at doing two things. Alas, no. And this is a phenomenon called catastrophic forgetting. And it's one of the reasons why 
these uh, practical algorithms that we have uh, can really only do one thing well at a time. And so you can think of kind of cascading to them together like you're doing apps in a phone or something like that and have one program that, you know, recognizes if it's a person or an animal and another program that says, okay, if it's a person, then let's locate the face and things like that. And you can build it modularly like that. But one algorithm trying to do lots of things usually ends up doing nothing very well at all. And there's lots of examples of people trying to make an algorithm that was a bit too complicated and just having it fail entirely. There's uh, the example of uh, Facebook M not too long ago. They had this uh, service that they were testing out. It was supposed to be an assistant. So you would tell it what you wanted it to do, like maybe it was supposed to check what time your doctor's appointment was or it was supposed to make dinner reservations or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the idea was it could do everything. But, and so they rolled it out to just a few people and they rolled it out to people who uh, started testing this out. And they said, okay, well, while this algorithm learns, it's going to learn to see by about the questions that uh, people ask. And if it seems like it's too hard for this algorithm, uh, then we'll, we'll send it to the question to a human for now. And a human will take over at that point. And the algorithm will learn from what the human did and it'll get better and better. And eventually we'll have an algorithm that can be, you know, full-fledged personal assistant and do everything. Mm-hmm. But what they discovered it was it was just too hard. You know, the problem was way too complex to be able to handle all these different ways of making different kinds of reservations or looking up different kinds of information. And then you'd get people who would be testing it out for things like, hey, can you arrange for a parrot to visit my friend in his office? <laughs> This is something somebody actually, you know, documented what happens if you ask Facebook M to do this. And it turns out Facebook M at service as a whole manages to solve that problem, but by using a human <laughs> to do it. <laughs> so when um so when you decided to try and train a neural network to write knitting patterns, so I would not call myself a skilled knitter, but I do know how to read a knitting pattern, and they're fairly standardized. You have text abbreviations and spaces and numbers and different rows and counts and that sort of thing. So uh, why did you start trying to train a neural network to write knitting patterns? Well, when I started this project, I did not know how to knit. I knew nothing about knitting patterns whatsoever. And so it was somebody who had been reading my blog who said, hey, knitting patterns are text-based and this, you know, your algorithms work on text-based stuff. So I thought you could do knitting patterns. And I said, well, maybe, I don't know. Let's find out. And so then it ended up being a fairly long project to collect examples and uh, then find out what the patterns actually look like. So was knit, were, did knitting patterns turn out to be something that was substantially different from the other work you'd done with, with uh, you know, like naming colors and coming up with names for Halloween costumes? Yeah, knitting patterns are a lot different from the color names, the Halloween costume names. Uh, and one of the major differences is that uh, they're really long chunks of text, and it matters uh, what happens during that text. So, you know, the first line has something to do with the second line. The beginning of the line, like all of these things have something to do with what you put at the end of the line, if it's a stitch count or something like that. 
And so there's all of this long-term information that the algorithm has to keep track of if it's going to do a proper knitting pattern. And it turns out that long-term uh, correlations, this sort of uh, complexity that lasts for more than a few letters at a time, that's hard for neural networks to do. It's really hard. And that's one of the ways you can tell if a neural network has written something is whether it sounds like, you know, you're maybe falling asleep while somebody is uh, describing whatever it is to you. And it sort of meanders all over the place and forgets what it was doing or like somebody describing their dream to you or something. Neural network stuff just tends not to make sense for more than a few words at a time unless you do something to really help it out and try and build in some framework or something like that. And me, knowing nothing about knitting patterns, had no clue how I could build in a framework to help out the neural network and maybe make it so it didn't have to remember as much or maybe count stitches for it or do something to help it out. Like I was just as clueless as the algorithm was. So I just said, well, here are some knitting patterns. Uh, good luck. <laughs> so what did the training data set look like and, and how did you acquire sort of the, the just the sheer number of patterns that you would need to train a, a neural network? Well, what ended up uh, working the best was uh, a data set that was given to me by stitchmaps.com. And the reason that that, and that was several thousand knitting patterns, and they were, rather than being all sorts of different things, like things with sleeves or socks or gussets or pom-poms or so forth, they were just simple swatches that would show a pattern on it. So. That ended up uh, working out the working out the best because they were they were simple, and they were also in one kind of uh, they were in one consistent format. So rather than having to deal with all sorts of different ra- ways of saying row one, like is it R one or do you write out the word row? Do you capitalize it? Sometimes that matters. Is there a colon that, you know, all these things that the neural network would have to waste its time learning. Uh, it cut, you know, it had a consistent format. So it only had to w- learn one way of saying row one or one way of starting and ending a pattern. Yeah, because that's something that, you know, I look at knitting patterns and I think, well, these are fairly standardized, but something like the row count just wouldn't even occur to me that that is different between patterns necessarily. Yeah, and then you get all these things like the first data set I'd looked at had socks in it. And it had, you know, stuffed animals, like stuffed elephants in it. And so how in the world is an algorithm going to figure out how to make an elephant trunk for one pattern and how to make a sleeve for something else? And, you know, I I did try briefly with a data set like that that uh, people had collected and it just plain didn't work. I mean, there was one pattern that ended up coming out of that particular example, and it was pretty much an undoable pattern, and it was a complete mess, and somebody just kind of sat down one Saturday night and said, well, I'm going to try it anyways, and ended up with this thing (laughs) that had tentacles and some kind of weird, I mean, it looked like something out of a science fiction movie or maybe a horror story, and that 
you know, was what this pattern had ended up making. It was nothing like it was supposed to make. I think the title of the pattern was Tiny Baby Whale Soto. And, you know, it had a million steps to it. And that was the only pattern anybody ended up successfully doing from that first data set that had everything in it. Okay. Because there are a decent number of uh, photos, which we'll, we'll link to in the show notes so people can go see some of these themselves. But it looks like even with the cleaner data set, uh, your volunteer knitters had to do a lot of interpretation along the way. Yeah, uh, you know, they would describe what the, what the neural network came up with. They'd say, well, you know, I kind of imagine it's a very elderly relative who has written this pattern and maybe was forgetful and made a bunch of mistakes and maybe didn't speak much English. So basically, they were treating it as a particularly buggy pattern. And I mean, this algorithm, it, eventually learned how to count rows, but it never really learned how to count stitches. So you'd get all these leftover stitches or you'd get too few stitches. So if then then the knitters would have to figure out what to do with them. Like, are you just going to let them drop and let the whole thing unravel? Or are you going to try to stick these ex- extra stitches in and then you end up with kind of tentacle looking things? There's all these different ways that people would have to come up with to try and fix this pattern, this neural network's mistakes. And so with the result, it was kind of cool. You would get three different people would make the same pattern and it would look completely different depending on who had actually knitted that one. So I I mostly just find this whole knitting neural network really entertaining. But how, what does this sort of tell us about neural networks and what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are? (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty clear that their weaknesses, they have a weakness where they don't understand what's going on. Like if I had had some way to tell this thing that you're supposed to count these stitches, that's what you're supposed to do. Or, you know, the num- the row numbers always go up. Here are what numbers are. Here are the order of numbers. And, you know, if I were to help it out at all, it would have done a lot better. And so this is like a lot of the algorithms we're seeing that are producing impressive results. They'll have, you know, some expert in there who has thought about this data set and who has figured out some way of setting up the problem so that the algorithm just has fewer ways to fail. So that's definitely one thing we've learned is that just kind of chucking a data set at an algorithm and expecting it to produce wonders eh, might not work, especially if the data set is really complex, like knitting patterns. Yeah, because we hear that sometimes is one of the, you know, the promises of big data and that sort of thing. We can just take these data sets and we'll throw a program at them. And, you know, the algorithm will teach us all sorts of interesting information about this data. Um, how realistic of an expectation is that? Well, the problem is uh, that, A, the problem might be really complex and the algorithm might not be smart enough to handle it yet. Or, B, the problem could be that the algorithm finds a way to solve the problem, which is not what we intended. So there's an example of a scientist, uh, uh, Roberto Novoa, who was uh, training an algorithm to... Uh, recognize skin cancer in pictures. And what he found out was he'd accidentally trained an algorithm that could recognize rulers instead because the largest pictures of skin cancer had rulers next to them for scale. 
And there's all sorts of other examples of people recognize of these algorithms learning to recognize, for example, the treatment drains that people put in lungs for a certain lung condition rather than actually recognizing the lung condition itself. Or they'll solve problems in, you know, what it, they thought was the simplest way, like there's algorithm, an algorithm that famously uh, was supposed to sort a list of numbers, and instead of sorting the list, it realized that what its task actually was, was to reduce the number of errors in this uh, sorting errors. And so it said, okay, well, to get rid of all sorting errors, I'll just delete the list altogether. And that was its solution. <laughs> This, this oh. <laughs> AI doing had, sort of yeah. unexpected things to solve the problem sounds like something straight out of science fiction where, you know, we tell the robots to protect people and they decide the best way to do that is to, like, severely constrain their activities in some way. Yeah, I mean, that is totally a artificial intelligence type solution. It's like, well, it doesn't understand the larger context of the problem that you're trying to solve. You know, there's another example I saw recently. Uh, another thing it's like is trying to train a dog to do something. So there is an article in Popular Science about uh, cancer-sniffing dogs and how they're really good at, they can actually tell the difference certain smells that uh, cancerous cells give off. And we're not sure precisely what that is, but the dogs are known to be able to detect that. The problem is when you train a dog to detect cancer, one of the things you have to make sure you do is you have to keep changing the people that they sniff during training. Otherwise, they think that they're supposed to recognize that individual person rather than, it. no, no, it's the cancer we want you to recognize, not this one person. So uh, how much care has to go into the data set for training for the machine learning and the neural network training? Oh, the data set is super important. The data set is one of the most important things. That's what's going to determine, you know, if there are hidden things in there like that ruler example. You know, if there are rulers in your data set, then your results are going to be junk. Or if your data set has some kind of bias in it, then the algorithm is just going to copy the bias because it doesn't know any better. So we're seeing a lot of examples right now for, you know, predictive policing and parole algorithms, for example, or even uh, algorithms that are supposed to screen resumes. What we're finding is that they're, they've picked up on the bias in their data set. They've learned to ask, act like the humans they've been trained to imitate, but they don't realize that actually, no, we didn't want you to learn the bias that you know these humans have. <laughs> so that's been a, a major way in which a data set can have huge implications on how well and how fair your algorithm works. Is there any way to get these programs to explain how they came to a decision or a result? Uh, these algorithms have historically been a black box, but there are definitely, there are people working on trying to get them to explain themselves. So for, in, in this algorithm explainability, like that's a huge area of research right now because people have realized that this is the problem. Uh, so there are image recognition algorithms now that will 
highlight the part of the image that they were using when they made their decision. So if you, so you might be able to realize if it's looking for a wolf and actually it's learned to detect the snowy background instead because it saw mostly pictures of wolves in the snow, then this this particular algorithm will highlight the snow and say, look, there's the wolf. And you can say, ah, you know, (laughs) I see what, I see what you did there. So there are definitely algorithms that can explain themselves uh, to some degree, but it is it is tricky because actually building in the explainability uh, is complex as well. So why should the general public? Because your projects, you know, people might look at your blog and think, oh, these are a fun joke, and and you're just sort of doing it to get people's attention, but. Why should the public care about algorithms and machine learning and how they're being trained and how they're being used in sort of the broader context? I think one thing that's important for people to understand is that these algorithms are not very smart. And so if somebody is claiming that their algorithm can, you know, can, you know, figure out if somebody's going to commit a crime, well, you know, what information does the algorithm have? Is it actually going to be good at that? Or if somebody's saying that their algorithm is able to hold a conversation about everything, then you can say, wait, that's a way too co- a complex a problem for an actual algorithm to handle. There's some trickery going on. This is mainly humans. So there's definitely a level of skepticism we need to have. You know, the algorithms that we see in science fiction that we're calling machine learning, that we're calling artificial intelligence, are miles and miles and miles distant from the things that are actually operating in our world. And it's important to understand how very unintelligent the algorithms that we actually use are, how very limited they are, and how much they depend on their data set and how easy it is to give them a data set that has been flawed. And again, this has huge, uh, you know, huge implications for if people are using algorithms to decide, for example, who is getting a loan. And they're basing these loan decisions on decisions, on decisions that people have made in the past. The algorithm's just going to copy the data that's been given without understanding that it's supposed to be fair or even what fairness is. But I also hope that kind of seeing how limited these algorithms are will uh, at least sort of make people feel a little bit better that these aren't, these machines aren't going to be taking over our world anytime soon. <laughs> well, because I think there's probably, and it, I guess it's maybe a technological optimism sort of, the, that there's this thought that, you know, some very smart people have sat down with a lot of information and trained this program. So, if it comes up with a, you know, in, in say a professional context, like deciding who gets loans or parole hearings or that sort of thing, th- there might be a, a, an impulse to, to trust the machine because it's been trained very well. And, you know, mm-hmm. these, these humans over here are flawed and biased. Yeah. And yeah, that's an important thing to understand is that, uh, machines is true. They don't get tired. They don't have a pre-launch or post-lump lunch slump. And they don't you know, take a dislike to you for some reason, but that doesn't mean that they're fair. They could be very, very unfair and still be making their decision, you know, in a predictable manner. So, yeah, that's definitely important uh, to understand. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs> you can learn more about Janelle Shane and find links to her AI Weirdness blog at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. We'll have links in the episode notes to photos of the projects that we discussed for both of these interviews, and they're definitely worth checking out. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.